0: I think for anyone studying international relations, so being a future diplomat, uh, is to cultivate cognitive empathy, because we can achieve nothing. We can have emotions, feel angry, and etc, but we will not achieve an outcome without understanding the other side.
1: China has a much richer history than conventional wisdom suggests, which stretches thousands of years before the rise of Communist Party. For the most part, this ancient civilization saw greater levels of wealth and international influence than Europe. However, with the fall of the Qing Dynasty in 1912, the empire slid out of relevance. This fall of the East synchronized perfectly with the rise of the West, a phenomenon we commonly associate with the themes of industrialization, modernity, and colonial subjugation.
2: For the first half of the 20th century, China was a petty battleground for the drives of Western empires to establish global dominance. The former empire was cheated into accepting unfair treaties and turned against itself. In 1945, however, this all began to change. The rapid transition we've seen since may very well have been the biggest comeback in human history. Mass mobilization, economic genius, and cultural rehabilitation are causing China to take center stage yet again, making this the perfect time for us at URSA to dig deeper into the conversations surrounding this mystery.
1: Living at this historical juncture. How we respond to global challenges all depend on China's actions. Understanding and cooperating with China is crucial, but there are many barriers in the quest to do so. How do we make sense of China's rise? How do we understand China today? Where do we take it from there? Dr. Yves T. Bergian is a professor at political science and Kawakai Chair in Japanese Research at the University of British Columbia. He's also a Director Emeritus of the Institute of Asian Research and Director of the Center for Japanese Research.
2: Yves is a distinguished fellow at the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada and a senior fellow at the University of Alberta's China Institute. He is an international steering committee member at the Pacific Trade and Development Conference. In November 2017, he was made a Knight of the National Order of Merit by the French President. Yves served as co-founder of the UBC Master of Public Policy and Global Affairs, which he founded as chair of the UBC Public Policy Curriculum Committee in 2014.
1: Youth Research specializes in comparative political economy and global economic and environmental governance, with an empirical focus on Japan, China, Korea, and Europe. Welcome to the new episode of Global Get Down. This episode, we are learning the rise of China. And this is your co-host, Jessica.
2: And this is your co-host, Gaurav.
1: Joining us is Dr. Youth T. Bergian. Hi, Dr. T. Birkin.
2: Yeah, Good morning, uh,
0: Jessica and Gaurav. It's a pleasure being with you.
1: So without further ado, let's get into it. So what did ancient China look like? Talk about its history, culture, geography and people and how to interact with the West.
0: The first thing is that China, along India actually, is one of those ancient civilizations that's been around for a long, long time and was very prosperous, very early, you know, much earlier. Uh, than Europe, for example. Uh, So China talks of a 5,000-year history, there's a similar length for India, but it's the fact that from the the last 2,000 years where we have estimates of data of the global economy, consistently from the year 0 to 1800, China and India together were 50% of the world economy. And uh, and China was always between 20 and 30, 35%, you know, oscillating. So a very advanced uh, economy, civilization, culture that also was quite advanced in political thoughts and, um, you know, and, and, and political governance. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that uh, the geography is actually, you know, now we see this big uh, space called China, but it's actually uh, fragmented because there are rivers, enormous rivers that all go from essentially from the west you know the tibetan plateau toward the east uh the two biggest uh the yellow river and the yangtze river there's also the pearl river in the south so that divides in china into three big slices and then there are vertical mountains uh you know so north south mountains that also crisscross china so by nature you could almost uh break down China into nine parts, right, between the two mountain range and the three rivers. Uh, so you, you quickly get, uh, you know, a, a, an image of fragmentation. And sure enough, uh, the story of China has been one of oscillation between unity and fragmentation. We call this the cycle of dynasties. Uh, but during periods of fragmentation, uh, you know, the kingdoms usually had the base in one of those macro regions, what we call macro regions, between mountains and rivers. And then at some point, one kingdom would conquer the neighbor and occupy two of the nine micro regions and eventually snowball into, uh, you know, unifying the country. So that's, that's a big part of the story. They have been the first full unity of all the kingdoms, you know, sort of the most powerful modern first dynasty is the Qin dynasty, uh, minus 200 BC to 20 BC, uh, with a uh, mercurial leader Uh, The first emperor, but he's the one who started building a great wall, having, uh, you know, exams to recruit officials, having centralized bureaucratic governance. So it all starts minus 220 BC. uh, And yet it lasts only 20 years because the man is also very cruel. Uh, He's responsible for the deaths of a lot of people and burning of books and etc. But he only lived 20 years. And then there was fragmentation, (laughs) competition among the heirs. uh, And... um, However, that period is quite, uh, fragmentation is quite short, and we get to the Han Dynasty. The Han Dynasty will have two parts, but roughly from minus 200 to plus 200, roughly speaking, it's a period of prosperity and unity. So that's the first long period of unity and peace. And this is when, speaking of your second question, when we know for sure that there is contact between China and the West through the Silk Road. So uh, you know, if we have records of the Silk Road existing during the Han Dynasty, and so we find silk arriving in the in Rome, for example. Um, and the Silk Road has both a uh, continental version and an oceanic version. Uh, it's actually not uh, one caravan going all the way from Shia in the capital uh, to, uh, to Rome, right? It's many caravans and they meet each other at sections and then the next caravan takes over, right? So, but And the goods are, uh, pass from hand to hand. The Silk Road is always interesting because it's, it's a mythical road. It has a huge influence in human history, in the sharing of culture, the transmission of culture, also in agronomy, right? All the fruit trees, pretty much all the fruit trees we have in the West today, came from some spot on the Silk Road. So apple trees come from Kazakhstan, you know, and such, you could track each of the crops and, and trees that we have, and they all have a story somewhere on the Silk Road, uh, from the Middle East all the way to, to China. So a lot of exchange, but during periods of war and fragmentation, the Silk Road uh, stops. So it's an on and off process. And so the contact between China and the West is also similar, it's on and off. Uh, After the Han Dynasty collapse, we have a period of 400 years of fragmentation. That's a long period lots of, uh, you know, conflict and late kingdoms. At some point we have like 50 kingdoms and it's kind of crazy out there. Uh, So China has not always had unity and during periods of fragmentation, uh, there's mass amount of death, right? So that's that's part of the Chinese psyche. When a country falls apart, there is millions of death and it's a very, very painful period, even though there's also scientific and intellectual innovation during those periods because some intellectuals can go from kingdom to kingdom. When the king is not good to them, they can escape go to another kingdom. So there is also some arbitrage going on. Then we get to the Sui dynasty, which is short, but is a prelude to the Tang dynasty. The Tang is worth mentioning you know, roughly 600 to 900 AD to simplify the, the, the dates, but this is uh, apex. This is when China is the most advanced place in the world. Um, and, you know, this is the capital in Xi'an. And that's when there are extensive connections, not just through the Silk Road, uh, but also with Japan, with Korea and Vietnam. And that's when, you know, Japan, Korea adopt uh, Chinese characters and a the language, love the practices. So that's why we call the, the beginning of the tributary system in some ways. You know, interestingly enough, also Xi'an is a cosmopolitan city where more than half the population is foreign. And a lot of them are, you know, Central Asians and Mong- Mongolians and Tibetans and Turkish and Muslims and all kind of people. Uh, and then there's a few foreigners probably will go from further, right? I said Turkish, but there could have been some Europeans that we don't know very much. So it's a, a very interesting open period of great prosperity. Uh, the first emperor Tang Taizong is an amazing character. So there's this apex, and to this day, even Xi Jinping, when he makes speeches, sometimes we, he say we want to, we want to go back to the prosperity of the Tang dynasty. So it's kind of the role model. This is followed by fragmentation first, you know, and of dynasties are always painful. You have declining leaders, you have corruption, then you have, uh, you know, failure of crops, you have famine, and then you have invasions from the north, usually from either Mongols or other, uh, Xiongnu and others. So, you know, it's always that cycle that happens again. And then we have the Song dynasty, initially unified, and then the north falls to the Qin and the Jurchin. So then we have the, South Song, the South, southern Song dynasty based in Hangzhou which is a very prosperous south of the Yangtze River. It's another apex, actually. Even though it's only half of China, uh, this is amazing in level of prosperity. So that's, uh, you know, Hangzhou will be visited by Marco Polo a little after the song, during uh, the Mongol dynasty, the Yuan. But basically, is witnessing what the song has left behind. And he says, I've never seen something like this. Way more prosperous than anything in Europe and Venice and all this. Um, and so they advance in agriculture, in science. That's when China leads the world in science, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and then there's the Mongol invasions. The Mongol invasion is on and off over almost a century. At some point, by the way, Monk Khan, who is the heir to Genghis Khan, uh, is defeated in Chongqing. Uh, North of Chongqing, there's this amazing fortress, fishing fortress, which you can visit now, where, uh, you know, amazing warfare story uh, after a siege and all this. In the end, there's some kind of bomb that hits the emperor himself and he's defeated. And then all the Mongol tribes have to go back to a base. They have civil war. They take 20 years to eventually appoint Kublai Khan. But Kublai Khan comes back he conquers eventually the Song by going around it. Instead of going from the north, he goes from Dali, from Yunnan, and it goes around it. Uh, and then for about 80 years, the Mongols control, that's the Yuan dynasty. So the Mongol is another unified dynasty. This is when the Silk road prospers because it's the Mongols control everything. <laughs> it's the first time and the last time that all of Eurasia is unified, pretty much. Um, and um, and um, Uh, However, about, you know, a third or 40% of the population dies. So invasions are horrible, right? I mean, uh, so there's a huge drop from 100 million to 60 million, that's 40 million people dying right in those wars. Then there is a succession at the end, the uh, Yuan are defeated by what will be the Ming Dynasty. The Ming Dynasty is, uh, you know, 1368 to 1644, so we're getting close. They Again, they do the same thing. They reunify, they rebuild the Great Wall, they rebuild the, uh, the exam system, uh, bureaucratic system, and the first few emperors are very prosperous, very brilliant, and then gradually there's decay. And eventually this corruption and it cracks uh, and it falls. 1644, the dynasty collapses from inside due to uh, fights, but also uh, one general opens the gate to the Manchus who come from the Northeast, the Manchu takeover. And we have the Qing dynasty, 1644 to 1911, that's why it's important It gets to the modern time, and it's a Manchu dynasty. Uh, again Manchu dynasty very powerful initially very prosperous they actually also launched expedition to central Asia that's when they take full control of Tibet and Xinjiang which was always connected to China but never fully controlled Um, they also settled Taiwan so that's where they really settled the current boundaries that China claimed even Mongolia and they prosperous initially there's some great emperors and then they gradually there's decay population explodes by three times but governance doesn't change they don't divide, you know, the local governance. So you have the same number of nobles for three times more population. And there's great inequality, there's poverty, there's lack of innovation, they missed the scientific revolution, and they invaded eventually by the West, right? So there is a a period of decay. So that's, you know, I guess all this we can call ancient China, but it's a great narrative of, you know, uh, great prosperity, great innovation, but also uh, terrible periods in between of fragmentation, invasion, collapse, decay, and the like, and recreation each time. And so the human, in a way, the lessons in the psychology or in the political thoughts in China is that fragmentation is always linked to disaster uh, and war and great death. And so that's why they're so fixated on unity. Uh, and also that. Uh, Because unity is not natural, it takes great effort through language, through governance, through a central government. Uh, Hence the the focus on central governance.
1: What are some of the most fascinating and unique things about China's rise after the collapse of Qing? And how could China manage the greatest economic transformation for human history?
0: Yes, uh, so that's that's actually an easier question. (laughs) Um, So from... It starts really, this this miracle, the Chinese miracle starts in 1979 uh, after Deng Xiaoping takes over in December 78. But between 79 and now, the the sheer economic rise of China is unprecedented. That is, if we count, you know, in, in absolute GDP term or in terms of number of people who get out of poverty, about 800 million people get out of poverty or China going from being, uh, 2% of world GDP to now being 19%. At that speed in 40 years, we have never seen this, right? Japan was the first, the pioneer of high-speed growth, but really did it over 150 years and uh, culminated at 14% of GDP and then now it's back down to six. So Japan was pretty extraordinary, followed by then Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and then South Asia. But but Japan, China took it to a whole other scale. Uh, the the the, the sheer rise and return to, uh, in a way, return to the position that China had in the system, right? So that's what we call this extraordinary uh, miracle. And there's a lot of lessons. Politically, there was a very smart positioning by Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping managed to say the right things and to gain cooperation of the US and of the West to come back to the global system, and it was partly due to the Cold War, right? because the U.S. wanted to uh, divide Russia and China. That was the core motivation. But then he also said, you know, he also brings some political uh, liberalism in the 80s, uh, only in the 80s until 89. And then there was interesting, he was not a dictatorial leader in the sense that there was pluralism in decision-making. There were different factions, there was push and, uh, push and shove, And so there was a lot of correction in the system. And that kind of system is better able to handle shocks and and difficult transition, right? And so I'm saying this because the worry among China scholars now is that under Xi Jinping, this more pluralistic decision-making has been weakened or broken, that we have concentration of power around one person at a time of great complexity, which makes it more difficult, right, to handle complexity. And then there was an extremely smart uh, economic management with hindsight, right? We know during the time they were having lots of infighting and discussions and pushing and and shoving and factionalism. But the outcome was a very pragmatic pathway where they avoided doing what Russia, Eastern Europe did, which is the Big Bang reforms, right? Uh, Privatize everything, deregulate everything. And then you have oligarchs, you have corruption, you have all the problems that appear. China did things gradually, letting the market thrive, but keeping regulations and, uh, you know, letting private sector rise, but then keeping state-owned price for a long time, then smashing them, then bringing them back. I mean, they keep evolving. They call this crossing the river by filling the stones. So experimentation, gradualism, multiple inputs into decision-making and an interesting balance, innovative balance between uh, market and state and other actors and regionalism and also decentralization between regional entrepreneurialism and central. So a lot of innovation went into decision-making, particularly the environment, uh, I mean, the economy and the environment. Um, The problem in the recent years is that, you know, society has matured and now it has modernized. There are now very high expectations toward. Being a less poor nation and with more capacity and to some extent more freedom, right? The young middle class. And somehow the centralized CCP has taken this as meaning there's a threat for the unity of the country. That now there's such an empowered middle class, there's so many diverse groups that have risen out of those economic reforms that we are in danger of fragmentation. And their reaction to that has been to tighten the CCP control and tighten the government control as well and the role of state on that price. Uh, You know, some in China would argue this is just an iteration in the process and they will be able to land in a point that's less dangerous and they can decentralize again and liberalize again. Others, mostly in the West, would see, oh my, this is a return to Maoism and a more centralized. And so this this is the end of the very decentralized pragmatic Deng period. And we don't know 100%, but the the signs are are not good, right? We just know that uh, the centralized leadership is afraid of having a Soviet Union collapse on their hands, right? They don't want to collapse that's what's driving their thinking but that has led them step by step towards some more control and repression uh, and that's the worry uh, for many observers that we, so we don't know in other term whether this incredible result of in all the innovation is a stable equilibrium or whether it's reaching a point that's unstable uh, and that's the unknown you're going to know this within your lifetime even my lifetime <laughs> But this is the great unknown right now, right? Can they stabilize all the results they have achieved? And can they correct the the course? They have to clean up the environment, they have to deal with inequality, all the legacies of those reforms. When you go this fast, this intense,
2: you have a lot of legacies to clean up, right? We could definitely keep talking about the history of China because it's fascinating. There's so much that went on there But since this is an IR podcast, and not to delve too deeply into just the domestic problems that ancient China kind of experienced, um, and to take an IR perspective to this, you have obviously spoken a bit about how, in practice, China's interaction with the West looked like. But how would we categorize the ideology? Would we say that they had a global or expansionist view? Did they have more of an inward-looking, isolationist view? And then could we compare this view in any way to how modern China functions? How would that work?
0: Yeah, it's very thoughtful of you. Very, very thoughtful, deep question. So I, I guess I will answer this in, uh, with two points. The first point is the powerful dynasties did have a localized, a regional expansionist dynamic you know, around them. So, you know, because initially the, the cradle of Chinese culture or the early dynasty, even before the, the Qin would be all in the northeast you know, around Xi'an and North Plains, and then all the way towards Shandong. Uh, So that's the cradle. And then as it became prosperous, you know, during Han first, and then during Tang, they spread to the rest of, you know, what is China proper with the, the South, and eventually towards Sichuan. And already there, as they expand towards Sichuan and Yunnan, they push around local indigenous people, right? So and indigenous people, gradually what's happening is they're pushed to the mountains. And so that's what China call the minority people now all around. So that's not for Tibet and Xinjiang that are large, empty spaces with deserts. So not the same logic, but in Guizhou, and Sichuan, in Yunnan, those areas that are gradually populated after the Han dynasty with Han settlers that are farmers and the like, uh, you know, clearly you see the the what we call minorities now, the indigenous people pushed to the mountain and preserving the culture there. So that's a know, that's an internal expensive logic, maybe similar to uh, the U.S. story with going west and expanding. Then there is the regional dimension. Uh, the most powerful dynasties did try to push the borders of, uh, of the realm around, right? So they pushed the border to what Korea, the Sui dynasty, Tang dynasty have great wars with what's North Korea now, the kingdom of Goguryeo. Uh, There is uh, expansion towards Vietnam and, you know, gradually they try to assimilate the Vietnamese, but... The end of Tang Dynasty, is a great pushback by Vietnam. And to this day, you know, Vietnam talks of a thousand years of history of war to push back. And then there is incursions towards Central Asia. So that's the expansive dynamic. Uh, first along what's now the Great Wall, it starts with the Han, then the Tang do it, but mostly the Qing dynasty pushes quite far into what's even Afghanistan. So that's the first point, right? It's a regional. Uh, expensive uh, dynamic. Some of it is territorial and then a little beyond. They always have those levels, right? So there's the Han Nice so or the cultivated area where some of the Chinese language the Chinese food, etc. starts to be spread. So those are the gradually populated area. And then there is the second ring around them, the friends who have partial Han culture. And so that's what later becomes the tributary system. They don't expect control of those, but they expect them to send tributes, you know, uh, from time to time. And then it's actually good to send tribute because you get much more than you give. So they have just to show up in the capital, they give some gift and then they get three times more gift. So that's why there were also some merchants disguising as a fake kingdom. You know, they got the idea. So I can make a lot of money with this. And so they started to be an office to separate what is an actual country or kingdom and what is a fake one to not, uh, because it costs money. Um, so those, those are fascinating stories. Uh, but so that, that was the first point. The second point is, is there a global vision? On this, no. Uh, China never had a global vision or sense of its presence in the world beyond what I described, right? The the realm around itself. Even uh, when it comes to India, India was always seen as extremely remote. It's extremely remote in any Chinese mind or writing or understanding. The only ones that really went to India were the monks, right? The Buddhist monks. Uh, well, they come back as Buddhist monks. They go as people searching the truth, and then they come back with Buddha, Buddhism, right? And then mostly during the Tang dynasty. But that's pretty much the extent of the understanding of India in China. You know, those two giant civilizations have complete ignorance of each other. And the other points of interaction is Tibet, right? But no, there's connection, but it never crosses down the, beyond the Himalayas. Well, there's another avenue of connectivity it's through the ships, but that too is very tenuous. There's a few merchants from Fujian, whatever, that will make it to India. Uh, but, you know, there's no connection to the, to the heart of China. There's one fascinating episode that's worth mentioning here. And that's a really interesting test case. And it encapsulates this whole debate on expansionism and all this. Is the episode of Zhang He's expedition in the 1400s, 15th century. So from 1405 to 1433, this admiral, who, by the way, is a Muslim that had been captured (laughs) in Yunnan and is a eunuch, uh, but trusted by the third emperor of the Ming dynasty, Hongwu, uh, is asked to build the biggest fleet on earth. And he does it in two or three years from nothing because China was never a Navy country, right? You know, so he builds this armada with 200 ships, some of which are enormous, you know, like 10 times bigger than European ships 80 years later that will come to the to East, to Asia. Um, and then uh, to go and explore, you know, to, to the West, uh, go to where the... So those ships go to Southeast Asia, they go to India, Calicut, Cochin especially, and then cross the Indian Ocean, they go to the Middle East, and they go to uh, Eastern Africa, uh, especially Mombasa, Kenya, Tanzania. And we find potteries there. And if you go to Cochin, which I have done, you still find the Chinese fishing nets in Cochin, uh, in India, in Kerala. And they're left from that period, from Zheng He's expedition. Those are Chinese fishing nets. Uh, but those expeditions do nothing like international relations theory would tell you. You should do, right? You know, according to realism, if you have the biggest navy on earth and you send those ships with an army of 20,000 soldiers, you, you're you expected to conquer the world, right? And to colonize. They don't do that. They bring potteries trees, tons of potteries trees and other things. And they bring back giraffes to the capital, initially Nanjing. Um, and there's almost no use of force. There is minor use of force in Sri Lanka now, what's called Ceylon at the time. And in... uh Palambang, which is in Sumatra. Those are the most fragrant recorded use of force. And in Sri Lanka, same thing happened. The king uh, of uh, Ceylon refuses the audience and I think either mistreated or killed an envoy from Zhang He's fleet. And so then Zhang He's fleet moves in with force and they capture him and they send him to Nanjing. Uh, But in a few contrast to what the Spaniards do in Peru with the great Inca, uh, in 1515 15, or 1510, 1520, they tortured him to death to get the gold, right? And it destroyed the Inca empire. In this case, the Chinese bring the king back to Nanjing in jail. And then they ask him to think about what he did wrong. Uh, and after a number of years, he apologizes for killing the envoy. And so they send him back and put him back on the throne. And so the story here is, when China had the greatest Navy and had power, they had absolutely no interest in conquest and colonization. And in fact, we know from the documents, the point of the whole thing was to demonstrate the greatness of Emperor Hongwu. So it was for domestic legitimacy purposes. Uh, And the reason why everything stops, first the emperor dies and the next emperor is less interested. Uh, So it shows it's so linked to the court, but also the eunuchs and the bureaucrats hate all this. They think it spends too much money. Waste of money. And so after, after the emperor changes, the bureaucrats win the battle. They stop everything. Zhang Ho has started in the 76th expedition as well. Uh, and everything is stopped. And he burn the fleet and destroys the shipyards and say, Navy is a stupid idea. We'll never do it again. And China never does it again until the modern times. So it's, the lessons from that are pretty extraordinary. Because what's astonishing is the Portuguese come around that area 80 years later. And they bring five tiny ships, and they take over Goa, and they take over Malacca by force, right? They destroy the defenses, they kill the king, they take over, right? So very, very brutal, with a very small force. But if the Chinese had been present at the time, it wouldn't have happened. Because, you, know, you you can't stop, you know, they would not defeat the Chinese fleet at the time. Uh, so it's a fascinating. Thing. It, clearly, the intentions were different. And so the Chinese take that to say uh, it shows that you cannot judge the strategies of a state by simply its capabilities, which would be realism, right? Instead, you have to look at the software. Uh, you have to look at the history and the domestic legitimacy factors and what motivates a country. So it, the Zheng hai episode is unique, stands out as something extraordinarily unique.
1: And maybe we can so It sound like China's interaction. interaction of the West is more Today, about China's behaviors are rather diverse, sometimes territories than extraction of sometimes wealth. So in a sense, that's a different conception of power so how do than how we China perceive behavior? it. In the, is there a pattern uh, in a more traditional Yeah, great question. Sense. Thank you, Jessica. Uh, we, like in the 20th century, there's a
0: few intervening so, uh, factors. So first of all, I would so so qualify a little bit about Chinese relation to the international system. The first one is in relationship uh, to power. That China mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. We inheriting, have to say as I mentioned, from the conclusion as you priority priorities of, that, that we, we need add add to start and and what is before we then explain the governance, governance within all those caveats, from, but thousands of years of thinking, uh, China is very, very sensitive around protecting the unity of the kingdom, of the country, and when it perceives that, that unity threatened then China behaves differently from, say, what Zhang Ho did, right? Because this is not anymore about uh, visiting the world and talking to other nations. This is about saving your own kingdom. Uh, and on that, the norms are, are different, right? And the norms that China has inherited is for, for the defense of unity of the kingdom, anything is possible, including brutal force, Right. Uh, And so that's the lens that China uses now when it comes to Tibet, uh, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, or Taiwan. Uh, And so the the West often can't differentiate, right? They say, well, if they do this in Xinjiang and Taiwan, then that means they're going to threaten the whole world. But China separates those things. (laughs) There is the defense box, the unity of the kingdom box, and that's the legitimacy of the rulers. From emperors all the way to today, no emperor will be safe if part of the kingdom is falling apart because it triggers all this fight or or flight uh, safety mechanisms within the Chinese thinking. Uh, It triggers the memory of collapse of dynasties and this and that and erosion. And uh, so that's the first caveat. The the second caveat is of course, uh, you know, the communist revolution or the Leninist system. Uh, So that that brings in a few differences from the traditional dynastic governance. And the Leninist system that we have today is born out of guerrilla warfare, out of very, very brutal infighting, right, in 1920s. Essentially, there were many uh, competing groups for uh, a post-dynastic China, starting with Sun Yat-sen himself, who wanted to bring democracy to China, and it failed. There were warlords, They were you know, all kinds of people. Chiang Kai-shek later has his own vision as Kuomintang, and then there's the communist vision. Within the communist vision, there are many factions. And all this is a crucible of warfare from 1911 all the way to 1949. This is a long time. And in a way, it's the toughest that survived, right? And the toughest was Mao Zedong. Many, many brilliant leaders died in this process. It's a winnowing process that's quite brutal and, and quite unique. But the China that emerged from that brings some special characteristics that, that are from the Leninist CCP nature, right? And the guerrilla. Um, and so there is some new DNA that maybe was not there before, but uh, some of it is guerrilla warfare, but some of it is, uh, you know, we are born out of a fight for survival. We were occupied, you know, for 100 years, first by other Western powers, then Japan. And and so there is... A, a bit of a tit-for-tat inborn reflex that if you come again and look like you're doing opium war to us or look like you're doing a boxer protocol 1901 we're going to fight very massively and anything goes right and uh, and the rules of war are very tough uh so that's that's a new dna that wasn't there in ancient china in some ways uh third is the socialization process because China used to be kind of isolated with its neighbors and never felt threatened except from the Mongols uh, and the Jurchen and the Jin and the Xiongnu, but all those northern people. That's why they had a great wall. Um, but then they entered the modern state system, where the so called Westphalian state system, where everybody showed up suddenly. The British showed up, the Dutch showed up, the French showed up, the Americans, everybody showed up. Everybody showed up with gunships. And and then everybody was carving out countries left and right, right? So a very brutal realist colonial system. That's the burst you know, that's the birth of modern China into that system. And so there's still there's tr- tr- trauma from that period, but also socialization. And and there is maybe a time lag, because if you are in Canada, we think now we're in a liberal rules-based international order, etc. But this rules-based international order is built on the foundation of the British empire of the colonial system and all the Pacific islands, you know, are still owned by colonial powers. Now they're, the, they're legalized on the rules-based order, but they are basically the result of power grab, right? From colonial times. So if you are on the losing end of the power grab, if you're China, you, they still grieve and agree, uh, grieving uh, lots of grievances from that time. And then fourth, China has entered global capitalism, uh, especially since Deng Xiaoping. Uh, and uh, global capitalism means you, you're not the same anymore because you're integrated in global economic independence and you need raw material. You need energy. If you don't have them, you can't function. You know, they, they don't have this autarky anymore. And so when they're out of those things, it triggers the, the survival mechanism. And that's why we see an aggressive China when it comes to raw material. So those are some fundamental caveats. But putting those caveats on one side, and those are big ones, right? And this is the bulk of grievances from the West, by the way. Um, Then, uh, you know, for the rest of global affairs, when it comes to, especially my area, global political economy and climate change, uh, we see a China that's not the China that's often depicted, right? We see when, in general, my argument that I call the mediated strategic interaction, when there is space in the system for China and Nothing triggers the sort of Great Wall mechanism or the defense defense of the kingdom mechanism. Then instead, you have a more Silk Road China, a, a China that sees opportunity and space, and then they play ball with the system. So they have played a very positive role at the COP21, the Paris Agreement on Climate, or at the G20, uh, or in some trade agreements, um, or in biodiversity now hosting the Kunming conference, doing great effort in this. So there's a whole area of domains where China has a progressive, we could call it, compatible with the liberal order behavior. Uh, But it's on the, you know, side by side with first the whole bucket of things I mentioned earlier, where China has more, you know, brutal, which they consider defensive behavior, but brutal by our standards, of course. Um, And then uh, also areas Uh, where they feel the system is stacked against them, there's no space, or even threatening. And then that triggers those very uh, powerful reactions that could be either innovative or defensive, uh, disruptive, right? So I would categorize cyber, the cyber system there, you know, all their reaction to the internet is extremely defensive. They're convinced that the West wants to liberalize the global internet governance in order to bring down the regime, right? So they're very... You know, you could say paranoid about it, but very, very defensive. Um, they, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of domain like this where they are all the unclosed, right? The the law of the sea. They they're not playing ball with it, as we know. They refuse to accept the ruling on the South China Sea because they they see it as biased and and too uh, threatening to their own interests. Uh, so there is that kind of diverse. Uh, I I tend to think that it's. Uh, You know, it's not a a pure realist lens, it's not a structural lens that makes sense here. But first, it's interactive with the actions of the system and the actions of the other players. It's very hard to, to, uh, you know, to kind of predetermine what China will do in three years or five years, without knowing the actions of other players. So there's a lot of social interactions going on. And second, it's mediated by mental frames and the triggering of cognitive frames and history. And so sometimes you see in China, the frame of defensiveness against invasion is triggered. And then you have a very, very rigid, aggressive response. Sometimes that frame is not triggered. And instead it's the most suck road, the interaction frame, uh, mutual uh, gains, mutual prosperity. And then you have a more cooperative China. And I, you know, then it's two reactions in the rest of the world, right? Either we say, there's too much of that defensive or that aggressive posture by China. Therefore, we must do Indo-Pacific strategies and defend ourselves and protect our, our countries, right? So there is some of that going on, of course. But then the other component of the reaction is because China is so big um, and because we face global systemic issues like climate change, nuclear war, uh, you know, managing AI, managing pandemics, we still cannot afford uh, to completely have a breakdown in global cooperation. We need some kind of cooperation. So the the West in a way has to manage this conundrum, right? Defensiveness on one hand and uh, when we find some aggressive or dangerous reaction,
2: but also the ability to still work together on global systemic issues. So just to link this back to one of your essays on Minerva's rule, you've defined Minervian actors as effective players dedicated to finding global mechanisms and tools that can stabilize the global system and advance the public good. So in this context, and everything that you've described, of certain positive actions of China, certain negative actions of China, do you think it would be more productive of us to ditch this lens of always, you know, looking at China as the antagonist in kind of international relations and trying to advance kind of more cooperation with them, specifically in the realm of, let's say, coming challenges like climate change, etc.? Yeah,
0: thank you. Um, so the Minervian book was really focusing on the role of the EU, Canada, Japan, and other partners like Norway, sometimes Mexico, Costa Rica, South Africa, uh, Brazil in the 2000s, uh, less than 2010s, who basically picked up the slack when the US, first under George Bush Jr., and then, of course, under Trump, uh, lost interest in this effort to build global institutions and global norms, right? The U.S. reverted to a power is might approach under Trump, but even under Bush to a large extent. And so there was this effort by all the other, uh, you know, in a way, they're all converts of the post-war liberal international order, right? The, the others tried to pick up the slack and advance global institutions like UNESCO on culture or human rights uh, regimes or responsibility to protect International Criminal Court, Cure the Protocol, all of those things advance without the U.S. The U.S. opposing it uh, and the list is long. China was in its early phase, still ambivalent, was not yet a, a critical actor because we we really focused on the period 1995 to 2010. And China's immersion as a powerful global actor is post-2010 or 2008. Um, And so China, we we made those tables comparative, the the role of China. We did find that China was playing with those actors, the Minervian actors, on environmental issues already. You know, signing up all those global environmental and implementing them when the U.S. was not, right? So that was interesting already. Uh, But there was a long list of other sectors, everything in human security and Uh, Human Rights statute, China was not on board, was actually opposed. So it it already provided a dilemma for the EU, Japan, and Canada. It's like, how do you handle this diversity? Moving forward, in the 2010s, China emerged as super important and global everywhere because it's been rising so fast. And we actually continue to see this dichotomy. We see actually everything became more intense. So the cooperative behavior of China was very marked on G20, climate, and those kind of issues. But the non-cooperative behavior of China on, say, on close or internet was also very stark, right? So that, that's been very puzzling. At the time, indeed, my argument was we have to... The first thing is, I think, for anyone studying international relations, so being a future diplomat, uh, is to cultivate cognitive empathy. Because we can achieve nothing. We can have emotions, feel angry, and etc., But... We will not achieve an outcome without understanding the other side. Right when we know there is a stable space, but then we have to be careful on the areas where there is no space, and then we have to you know, do different behavior, more defensive. Uh, so that's that was the 2010. Now the last two and a half years have become another period. Uh, to me, the the big turning point, you know, is 2019. Actually, I mean, it's mostly the Trump presidency, but in 2019, April, May, that's when the, the trade war escalated out of control. Uh, when the deal broke through, you uh, know, I mean, broke down. They, they almost had a deal. It broke down, and then the US escalated the tariffs to a level that was way beyond anything seen on Earth since the 1930s by any standard. And, and also the entity list for Huawei, et cetera. So some more security measures. So very, very intense measures. And then China started retaliating very harshly as well. And so from 2019 and even more so during COVID, we have entered a period of very harsh tit-for-tat between the US and China, and everyone else is caught in a crossfire. Uh, and we also see a hardening of the discourse coming out of China with the wolf warrior behavior. Uh, and of course, uh, the willingness to escalate and take more risks, for example, in uh, the way they have done political repression in Hong Kong and of course Xinjiang. And so that's another level, right, the, the, the level of action. So I think uh, the U.S. action have been very disruptive to the global order, very, very disruptive, and have played a big role in breaking down cooperation. Uh, but then the response by China was also very disruptive and broke down cooperation further. Uh, so we are in this odd period now. And Biden in a way is doing Trump light, right? But still it's it's more polite, but the same measures are in place. And there is almost no effort on the cooperative side. And so that starts to have a critical mass. Within China, what we hear is that the scholars, the policymakers and the like start to have a consensus that the world is different now since 2019 or so. And this is a world where the West will organize to bring down their regime and stop their rise completely. So they feel now threatened. And so that starts to to pollute every domain. I see it as a harsh interactive game, but there is no question that some of the actions taken by China, which of course, you know, the action from the US, we can see uh, sometimes unfair or poorly calibrated, not good for the global order, but they don't threaten us directly, what they did in 2017, but not for long. Whereas the Chinese response is against the US, but against many others, including Canada and others. So then, of course, in turn, we feel threatened by their actions. Uh, and so that's, that all this triggers a hardening game and a quasi Cold War. Uh, once you're in that game, you're not anymore in a space where it's very hard, you know, easy to cooperate on the happy domains because the trust, the overall trust is collapsed mutually, right? And so that opens space for very dangerous behavior. You know, once you have a a no bottom line situation, like, or, you know, a bottom line uh, mentality, and then there's nothing to lose kind of aspect, which seems to be some of the thinking around Xi Jinping, uh, it's a different game, right? Very, very different. And so in turn, then, you know, partners have to think differently how you deal with that. Mm -hmm.
1: So we mentioned that Mm -hmm. lessons can be learned from China's rise. What about what regards to the global south? Do you think China's rise is a good news to the developing world? And for example, does the Belt and Road Initiative bring something good for the global south? Or is it just another form of colonialism?
0: Yeah, another great question. You got all the biggies here. This is is worth a whole podcast. But uh, the plus for the developing world, uh, that is the non-colonial argument, would be it gives them options because, say, if you're in Western Africa in recent years, all you had was the French former colonial overlords, you know, who control also the French CFA. And so, uh, you know, for Africa, there was few options. And so there were some neo-colonial networks with France, right? And on and on. Each region was like this. Uh, stuck in very limited options. Also, they were stuck with no funding for infrastructure. And so they were stuck in underdevelopment. Now they got options. They got leverage. They can leverage one against the other. Second, they also have gotten now massive funding. uh, And in some countries, it has really boosted their growth like never before. Uh, Coming to mind are Bangladesh, Pakistan. They're booming like not (laughs) ever before. Some Latin American countries, to some extent, uh, Tanzania, Kenya, Ethiopia was doing great until the civil wars. Now, you know, it's been growing eight, nine percent a year for like fifteen years. So this is the result of having all those influx. Um, and then, in general, uh, China has also been willing to train African elites. A lot of them go to school, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you know, I hear from many Africans that this is the very positive aspect, right? That there was all this leverage and options. Um, also, there are many positive stories. There are many cases where, you know, there's been very useful, well-targeted infrastructure uh, that nobody else was financing. There was no, uh, this is the only game in town with Belt and Road, right? World Bank has stopped giving money for infrastructure and the West was not giving any money either. Um, so that's the plus on the uh, balance sheet. The minus on the other side is some countries have, grown into dependence to a China when, you know, it's all about a matter of balancing, right? If you start having too much debt to one country, that starts to be a risk, right? And so we see some countries that have reached that level. So that's one. Second, there have been bad projects because uh, the Belt and Road is very decentralized. There's no good monitoring. There's a very, very tiny unit in central government that They have very little knowledge even of all the projects. They told all the companies to go out and do stuff. And many companies in China are newcomers. They don't have good risk management. They don't have financial management. So they sometimes invest out of enthusiasm or political reasons into projects that are stupid. Uh, And then those projects don't work. And those bad projects, if they're funded by debt, where you pay 6% in dollars, which is 75% of Chinese uh, debt is... Is in dollar at six percent interest rate more or less right so you know that suddenly you're loaded with a bad project that you can't pay for um and then uh also a further argument is that to some extent the the west at least and world bank and international station were trying to use the leverage of funding to push for better governance and sometimes democracy not always successfully but there was effort and that effort doesn't happen with China it's not like China wants autocratic regime but they don't they don't care the governance system and therefore they, they dilute the efforts of international institutions and some of the countries and then they can be geopolitical rivalries so sometimes we find countries like Djibouti or Sri Lanka that are now increasingly battlegrounds for geopolitical rivalry and there's pushback, and this and So now you start to see investment that are for more geopolitical reasons and that's dangerous also the transparency because a lot of the belt and road contracts have secrecy clauses and so we see in kenya you know the parliament could not get access to the clause was mad you know Uh, so that's a problem there should be less uh, you know there should be more transparency some projects have not included the Uh, consultation of the community uh, and NGOs and environmental uh, damage and all this. Supposedly now China is this Belt and Road 2.0 period is improving on this, but there's a long way to go. So that's all the negative of the balance sheet. So the net outcome is diverse. I think my hunch on the Belt and Road is you have terrible projects, middle bad project, middle good project and good projects. (laughs) It's all over the map and it's poorly managed and coordinated but some of them are helping some countries uh, emerge in in the global economy.
1: Our last question is, do you have any recent work that you would like to share with us?
0: Uh, So the most recent work of the last uh, 12 months and even the last few months has been uh, on COVID. So I've done a lot of work, a book and a bunch of articles uh, comparing COVID policy. Uh, So I strongly recommend this, Very small books, very little book, and it's available online as well. The East Asian COVID-19 Paradox, it does cover China, uh, what China did wrong, what China did right, and also the global governance, WHO politics, and all that that aspect is covered. But it's focusing on the puzzle as to why, if you do a ranking of uh, outcomes based on deaths per million, deaths per million is... uh, you know, grim outcome, but it's kind of more reliable than cases, because cases are poorly measured uh, due to testing differences. Uh, what's is striking is East Asia emerges as having performed much better than the rest of the world, especially Europe and North America, which is astonishing, right? Because country like Vietnam or country like, you know, uh, Korea, we're not supposed to do better than US or UK or France, right? And they did. Uh, And so the book kind of focuses on that story, what explains, uh, you know, this performance, what also the limits, you know, they're all under stress now during Omicron. So there's limits. Uh, To some extent, I did comparative data as well on Central Asia, South Asia and other parts. And Africa did very well as well. So far, right? Cross uh, fingers. Um, So there's all that dimension. I've also done a recent article on the COP21 climate change. Uh, with co-authors and we unpack the dynamics that allowed success there and the role of China in this so warmly recommend that and
2: uh, a few more books are on the way including one on the global order in transition thank you so much for joining us I'm sure we and our listeners will be sure to check out all your latest work and just thank you for joining us today this is it's been a lot to think about and a lot to talk about so thank you